Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today we'll be interviewing my brother, Dr. Rayshon Ray from Brookings in the University of Maryland at a very important moment where we're going through the Chauvin trial. And he's going to talk about race and policing. But before we get to Dr. Ray, I wanted to take a moment to recognize the tragic death of yet another Capitol Police officer this week. In case you missed it, on Friday, Capitol Police Officer William Evans died as a result of injuries sustained after an assailant rammed his car into barriers securing the Capitol's perimeter, killing Officer Evans and injuring another officer. This comes on the heels of the January 6th insurrection where another Capitol Hill police officer died and 73 Capitol Police officers were injured. Now, for those of you who don't spend much time in Washington, losing two officers from the Capitol Police Force is rare. Because until January 6th insurrection, the traffic on Capitol Hill was pretty much tourists, members of Congress, staff, and lobbyists. So as far as law enforcement goes, this used to be one of the safest places for an officer to work. That's unfortunately no longer the case, because the U.S. Capitol is now ground zero for extremists and insurrectionists. And that's a loss for us all. No more families and tourists and school children touring the Capitol. Members of Congress and their staff now live in fear for their lives because of extremists of all stripes now view the Capitol as a target for their terrorism. While I won't equate this random attack with January 6th, I remain deeply concerned that the Capitol and the officers that protect it are now targets for terrorism that we would have never foreseen just a few months ago. I know that Congress is looking into how they can better secure the Capitol and better protect members of Congress, staff, and officers, and they should do what's necessary. But unfortunately, I fear that the trade-off will include turning the Capitol into a maximum security facility instead of the people's house that it's always been. And that's a loss for us all. And that's that on that. Now on to our conversation with Dr. Rayshon Ray. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com, Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Man, I got a great episode today with my brother, Rayshon Ray. Welcome to the Bakari Sellers Podcast. How you doing? Hey, I'm great, Bakari. Thank you for having me on. Man, the first thing is, man, you got breaking systemic oppression on your shirt. I know everybody can't see it because they're listening to the podcast, but that's a dope shirt. Tell me about it. Where you get that from and when you sending us some? Yeah, I, I can make that happen. So it's actually one of my uh, 
one of my younger fraternity brothers who has a, a clothing line and he has all different colors and, and that sort of thing. So I'm a member of Alpha Phi Alpha. So the colors I happen to have on black and gold, but in particular, the, the slogan breaking systemic oppressions, I think not only speaks to the role that systemic racism plays in our lives, but also the, the roles that we have as individuals to exert some agency. Um, as a sociologist, I'm a structuralist and I understand that structure matters, but there are also things that we might be able to contribute at the individual level. So my kids have this shirt as well. <laughs> I have two boys and you know, part of it is just instilling in them about aiming to control what you can control and helping other people to be able to have the agency to control their lives, which is addressing systemic oppressions. Look, I don't necessarily need the black and gold, but you can send me some extra large in my way. <laughs> Man, you know? I will. Look, you let me know what, what colors you want, and uh, I'll, definitely, I'll definitely connect you with the guy. Man, look, we, we start each one of our episodes the same way. You said you were a sociologist and a structuralist. I don't know what that means, so you had to break that down. <laughs> but you're also a commentator, a writer, and you do a lot of hands-on practical work with police departments and organizations around the country. Why did you choose sociology? I, I mean, like I can just, I, was, I went to liberal arts. I was a history major. My father taught African-American studies. So I didn't necessarily have that pushback, but you can imagine some parents like, why the hell are you majoring in sociology? What you going to do with that? <laughs> so talk about your training as a sociologist and how that informs your orientation toward the work and the world that, as you see it. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I think my family was the exact same way. So I'm originally from Murfreesboro, Tennessee. So similar to you, I'm a Southerner. I grew up in Atlanta and um, I always wanted to go to medical school. My uh, mom is a registered nurse. My grandmother is a nurse. My wife is a nurse practitioner. My mother-in-law just retired from the hospital as the longest tenured employee of 48 years. So I was going to go into medicine, but I got into college and I took a sociology course. I had no idea what it was. In short, sociology is the study of how individuals interact with society. We study why people think what they think why they feel what they feel and why they do what they do. Mm. And then the role that broader social institutions, whether that be the schools and educations that we're embedded in, our family networks, our community, the media we consume, our life experiences, how those shape what we think, what we feel, and then, of course, how we behave. So in short, I took this sociology course. I didn't know what it was. I sat in the back of the class at, you know, University of Memphis is where I did my undergrad work. And um this professor, well, the professor had uh, cancer and she ended up not being able to teach the class, mm. but she she survived. So that that was the part of the great story. But she had a graduate student fill in and he would come in and do these wild things. It was a large class from two, three hundred students in class. So one day it was about 10 minutes late. I was like, I'm leaving. I don't even know why I'm here. And, you know, I'm a freshman. I'm I'm like, I'm going to go go stroll the yard, do whatever. And he comes in with a white uh, bathrobe on some uh, flip flops a shower cap and a squeegee. And he says, oh, I didn't realize that the time changed. You know, it was the fall. He said, I didn't realize it was time change. I didn't have enough time to change my clothes. I was about to take a shower. So I came like this. And I was like, who is this guy? And uh, about 30 minutes in the class, he said, who can tell me what I've been lecturing about? And I had no idea. And he said, what I just did on you all is a breach experiment, which is where you do something different than what people expect for the norms to be in the space. So for example, you get on an elevator, someone's facing the wall. What are you going to do? Are you going to get off? Are you going to get on with them? Like, this? I mean, what do you in these do, days, right? in these days, I'm getting off. Like, I'm, I'm getting off, right? You, you're at a ball game, right? After COVID, you're at a ball game and all the urinals are free and you're using the restroom and another man comes in and stands beside you and starts talking to you and you don't know him. Like, these are the types of 
breaking of social norms that play a role in society. And I fell in love with sociology. I was like, all right, what do I do with this? Okay, I can go get a PhD. I can be a professor. And, you know, I went to Indiana to get my PhD. I did a postdoc at Berkeley. I spent some time teaching at the University of Mannheim in Germany. And um, now I've been in Maryland and a policy analyst at Brookings. That's a dope circle. Um, we have a lot of Southerners on the show by design. You're from Murfreesboro, as you said, and you study race, which in itself is just interesting. Talk about how being black in the deep South helped shape your worldview on race and what you ultimately decided to take up as your vocation, among other things, a scholar on race and inequality. And let me let me just ask you this question. This is the, you know, for me, this is the million dollar political question that I kind of want you to tie into your answer. But I feel like we would, make a great deal of progress if we, when we're talking about society behavior and the way people interact, if we could understand why white folk who make under $50,000 vote Republican. Mm-hmm. So talk about tying that in, especially through your prism in the deep South. Yeah. So, so I'll, 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 I'll kind of end or start with your, your important question and then back into it. Um, I think president Lyndon Johnson said it best. If you can convince the lowest white man that he's better than the highest black man, then you can pick his pocket and he won't necessarily know that you're doing it. And I think that the Southern strategy that Republicans have implemented since starting with Nixon and before that Trump also took up is alive and well. And Arlie Hochschild has a book called Strangers in Our Own in Their Own Land, mm-hmm. talking about uh, Southern rural working class white people. I grew up around. I'm pretty sure you grew up around. Grew up around. Yeah. And, and it's one of those situations where what part of what happens is that whiteness is not solely about economics, which is the way people like to think about racism. Instead, whiteness is a currency that brings along social capital and cultural capital. So part of making these convictions is not simply about whether a person has money or not. It's also about the fact that white people understand that there is a currency, that me and you walk into certain places in the South, we go home and being called boy instantly strips all our degrees, everything you've accomplished in life. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that simple word by someone who's working at a convenience store, who might not even have a high school degree, but who's white, instantly could put us supposedly in our place. So as a Southerner, I'll, I'll quickly say, I, you know, my mom raised me as a single parent. She got pregnant with me when she was in the military and uh, uh, made just a phenomenal woman. She was actually admitted to West Point um, mm. as a black woman in the seventies. It's pretty phenomenal because she, she chose not to go to West Point and chose to get out and raise me. This was kind of before, of course, women were allowed to stay in the military and raise children. So she took an honorable discharge, put herself through nursing school, worked a full-time job, two part-time jobs. Uh, My grandfather, Purple Heart, Bronze Star, drill sergeant, served over 20 years, served in two wars. I have a lot of law enforcement people in my family as well. My great uncle was the first black chief of police of Murfreesboro. Like this is my legacy. But despite all that, what stands out to me is growing up in Atlanta and not only being just nomadic. My mom and I, I think we moved 13 or 14 times on my 18th birthday. Schools were consistent for me. And there were a few experiences that really shaped me. In short, one was we moved to a a new part of of the city. 
And the school that I went to was so dilapidated, Bakari. I mean, it, it, the, the windows were broken. This was in Atlanta in August. We didn't have air conditioning. The bathrooms were just filthy. The Bunsen burners, like what the heck was that? There weren't even enough books for yeah. all the students. And I had just been at this other school, which was really good. So my mom taught me how to get on the martyr bus, take two buses and walk over a mile to get to the other school. I ended up being part of a busing program, majority to minority. Mm -hmm. So what I was able to see was getting on a bus with all black kids, going to a community college. They would blow a horn. I would get off that bus with all black kids from my neighborhood, get on another bus. Now I'm on a bus with black, white, Latino, Asian kids going to the previous school I went to. Like that, that, that was racing class at its height. And interestingly, the only reason why I qualified for the program is because of my grades. But there, I had other friends in my neighborhood who were just as smart, if not smarter than exactly. me, but they had already opted out of the program. And then finally, I remember going to baseball practice one day, not only dealing with racist coaches, but the one thing that really stands out to me, there was a, um, this was in Stone Mountain, which shouldn't be surprising to people now, <laughs> given the, what people, you know, have come to know about Stone Mountain. Correct. Riding down the street and, uh, Traffic was backed up and I saw people collecting money in the street. I assumed they were firefighters. But what I later realized is that uh, it was the KKK. And I heard my mom say, oh, shoot. So she cracks the window a little bit. This man comes up with a hood and he kind of raises it up and he says, do you want to donate to the Klan today? And my mom said, no, I don't think I want to do that. And he said, hmm. He said, well, do you want to join the Klan? We, we need good nigger women like you. And I'll never forget that as long as I live. And, and, you know, I'm, ten, I'm about 10 years old grappling with that. And I'm thinking about that now because that's the, the age of my oldest kid. And I think those experiences with structure, with education, with direct forms of racism, um, I think have shaped how I view the world and obviously what I, what I study. Mm. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. I'm interested in your policing work. 
specifically around police reform and implicit bias. Talk about the work you do with police departments around the country with implicit bias and virtual reality. And what do you say to people who are skeptical of reform and believe that policing in America can't be reformed, but instead needs to be defunded or abolished? Mm -hmm. So... So what we've done at the University of Maryland, I direct the lab for applied social science research. We call it LASER. We developed an innovative virtual reality decision-making program with computer scientists. And that shit sounds smart. That sounds that sound smart right there. I don't oh, even know what, yeah, that sounds like it costs. It's, and it's, don't break it. Don't break it. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, don't, yeah it's, it's funny. We had, a, we had a flood in our lab the other day. We had a pipe bust. That was uh, quite a stressful moment to say the least. But essentially what it is, I want people to think about it like this. You put on virtual reality goggles, and you're fully immersed in a virtual world. And you're immersed in a virtual world similar to what law enforcement encounters. So you go on traffic stops, domestic house scenes, like you, you sit there, you're like sitting in a police car, you get out, you can walk around, you look around the neighborhood, um, you deal with suspicious person scenes, robberies at convenience stores. So we fully immersed police officers and we've worked with police departments across the country, in the South and in, in the Midwest and the East Coast. And then not only do we vary the setting, but we vary the race and gender of the person who they encounter when they have these experiences. We, and part of what, what happens is that the character interacts with them um, in real time. So we're able to, to acutely examine the role that race, place, and gender play mm -hmm. in how police officers treat people. And not surprising, we also take them through attitudinal tests and physiological assessments. We can measure their physiology, their heart rate, their stress level, their reaction time. So we hook them up with all kinds of cool stuff. The whole objective is to improve their equity when they're interacting with people. We want to put them in a safe environment where they can practice, where they can learn to undo the biases that all of them have coming into the fold. In other words, we don't really find too many differences in bias based on the race of the police officer. Now, we do find that white officers are more likely to embody anti-Black bias, but it's not to the extent that people would think. And more importantly, they're all trained the same way. Correct. So we take them through this scenario. We find this bias. So let's back up. Just to be clear, that's why when we are chastising or being critical of Black officers who use excessive force and brutality, et cetera, we're saying that, and, and the response is often, oh, that can't be racist because he's black. We're saying no, that the system is what we're talking about, not the individual who is a part of that system, correct? Without a doubt. I mean, look, part of what happens in the media is an overemphasis of white officers committing violent crimes, oftentimes is what I would classify it is, officer-involved shootings and killings on young black men in particular. Mm -hmm. But and we know that those statistics exist. Right. We know that black people are two point five times more likely to be killed by police than whites. We know that black people are three point five times more likely to not be attacking and not have a weapon relative to whites and still be killed. But we also know that white people are killed, too. And we also know that black officers engage in these activities because they're trained the same way. Mm -hmm. They are part of the same organizational paramilitary system of law enforcement. And we know that they lack a level of accountability. So part of what we've aimed to do is to collect a slew of data, starting with our virtual reality experimental data. But we've also conducted hundreds of interviews with law enforcement, hundreds of interviews with civilians. And we have a training program that we think is second to none. We've, you know, I've testified before Congress about this work 
but more importantly, we have to increase accountability. And that's one of the biggest things we've learned. And I think the way to do that is to really address civilian payouts for police misconduct. There you go. And that goes to uh, the heart of some of the the liability shields that we're talking about and removing those liability shields. Look, I, I hear you. I agree with you. The pushback, though, is going to be that there's an element that I'm not sure you can root out with the type of training that you're doing. And that's that white supremacist and other extremism that we have within our police department. Back in January, the insurrection where law enforcement officials were actively a part of the insurrection, the country finally began to come to terms with what black folks have known for some time, that uh, sometimes the racist is the one with the gun and badge. How significant a problem is white racial extremism in our law enforcement agencies? And how do you root that out in police departments? I think it's probably one of the biggest domestic national threats that we have. And that's just not coming from me and the research I do. That's also coming from the Department of Homeland Security, including uh, four-star Marine General John Allen, who's the president of Brookings Institution. And we've been doing a lot of work at Brookings addressing domestic terrorism and uh, the role that white supremacy ideology has. Look, one big thing people have to realize, and you know this, is that the roots of law enforcement in America date back to slave patrols. We've never grappled with that. The other period, of course, the big period we know is during the civil rights movement that people went, law enforcement went from wearing hoods to not wearing hoods. And those people did not change. The policies did not change. And we act like some kind of way they just went away and stopped being racist. That was not the case. And of course, we know that there are a series of more recent incidents that also play a role. One big one I always look at is uh, the Emerald Society, which was founded in 1952 in Boston for uh, Irish firefighters and law enforcement. It's one of the reasons why in Boston you see such a strong white supremacist uh, connection with law enforcement and public safety that also extends to other places around the country. And of course, as I've written from from about the the insurrection to policing, is that bad apples come from rotten trees in policing. And those rotten trees are imbued with white supremacy ideology. And that is what we've never dealt with. And uh, Dr. Otis Johnson, who's a professor at Hopkins, he said, I'm unsure if culture is reformable. Mm. I, I think that's such a deep statement. I'm unsure if culture is reformable. And if, if people even think about what I'm saying, I'm, I'm focusing on structure with the assumption that these structural elements will lead to cultural change. But it's difficult to address culture. But that so, flies in the face. That flies in the face of, you know, the, my core tenet that this country is not is not irredeemable. It's just unfinished. But that requires cultural change. It completely requires cultural change. And and I think the the, the way to get to cultural change is we have to change the structures, meaning the policies, the rules, the regulations and the procedures, particularly in law enforcement. I mentioned civilian payouts. We also have to address uh, FOP unions. We also have to address the role that uh, civilians play in this process. I think Nashville has one of the best examples where they have a community Mm -hmm. oversight board that has votes on the internal trial board um, that operates in law enforcement. I really don't think people, and I've served on a lot of these committees, I really don't think people realize the extent to which police officers are policed internally. So they have a lot of internal accountability. They have very little external accountability. And we know that just over the past five years, that just in the major 20 metropolitan areas across the country, over $2 billion in civilian payouts for police misconduct have been paid out. Interestingly, though, 
more money on settlements is actually spent in rural and suburban areas oh, than I it is in them. these major metropolitan areas. I represent them. I know. I got. I, if you go to my IG page right now, you'll see my my most recent post is a, is is a very similar case to what you're talking about. But you also do something which I think is very healthy for the discussion. I'm, I'm on TV a lot right now having these conversations with law enforcement or Marco Mira, who uh, was mm-hmm. one of the experts in the in, for George Zimmerman. Mm-hmm. And you push back on this argument I hear a lot. And so maybe you can teach me the response to it. But you don't believe that this is just, and neither do I, a case of the quote unquote bad apple, right? And you push back on that. You make the case persuasively in your work that the tree is rotten. So why is the bad apple framing a dangerous one for shaping policymakers' orientation around police reform? Yeah, I mean, the, the bad apple analogy is an over-individualization of the process. And, and it's also part of a larger white supremacist structure. It is a key narrative by which to obfuscate the real issue and instead to try to blame individual people. And so part of thinking about it is, after a while, If the floor is continuously wet and you have to continuously mop it up, eventually you need to say, where's the water coming from? Instead of just who's putting the water down. I'm still in that one. I mean, if you hear that on CNN, I got it. (laughs) And so that that, that's one of the the things that we have to think about here is is how that process plays out. And look, I know, you know, part of what happens is people say, oh, I know tons of great officers. It's not about the great officers. What I found in my research is that those officers are limited and what they can do. The blue wall of silence doesn't simply exist because they wanna be loyal. The blue wall of silence exists because there are consequences. And one of the best examples to highlight this are black officers themselves, whether that be the Capitol Police or Mm -hmm. elsewhere about the consequences they have. One thing my research highlights is that black officers are less likely to be promoted. They are more likely to be disciplined. They are more likely to be transferred out and less likely to be put on specialty units. This is systemic. And so part of what happens is, is that we focus on police killings. But the other thing that my research highlights is trickle down policing. So mm. in other words, we, we focus on the core outcome that we consider to be the most dangerous thing. But before that one, per- one person was killed, there were thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people stopped. There were thousands of people profiled and hundreds of people who were brutalized when they should not have been. So part of what has to happen is, and we also have to be clear about what law enforcement is here to protect. They're here to protect property and people. And oftentimes those aren't people that look like me and you. And oftentimes those aren't the communities that we come from. So we have to be very clear about the structure. And, and again, what's, what's important to note, it's not about whether or not a person is good or bad. One of the things that I've noticed is that I have seen really good officers, people who I would consider to be really good, who are objective in our or in our virtual reality experiments and in their attitudes oftentimes, who are put in positions where they fail. And failing meaning, it leads to someone being seriously injured or hurt that then falls on the role of taxpayers to pay for that. Yeah. Talk about the what, what are the what are the Ray Rayshawn Ray must-haves in police reforms? Look, I and, think and, the, and, and then I like people to learn something from it. So don't we don't have doctorates listening to the show inside sociology. So <laughs> give them something they can use around the water cooler at work. Yeah, the, look, the, the big one is this. We need to have police department insurance policies. What that means is right now we have civilian payouts. So let's take the $27 million with George Floyd. 
tax, that money overwhelmingly comes from taxpayer money. So let's take Laquan McDonald, the five, six million dollars in Chicago. Chicago actually issues bonds because they can't afford to pay for the settlements. So mm. now taxpayers are having to pay for those bonds. This is a screwed up system. Let me tell you why. Because as much as we talk about the south side of Chicago, southeast D.C., I mean, we could go to all other parts of the country and look at dilapidated areas. Imagine if the funding I'm talking about was spent on work and education infrastructure. On the front side. I mean, that, that changes the ballgame. Changes the changes entire ballgame. Ball and not only that, the insurance policy, similar to if you have a vehicle and you keep having an accident, or more importantly, if you're a physician and you work in a hospital and you keep messing up in surgery, whether it's deliberate or not, you keep messing up. And guess what's going to happen? The insurance company is going to no longer insure you. And then what's going to happen? The premium for the hospital is going to increase and they're no longer going to let you perform surgery there. Correct. So this is a process for getting these quote unquote bad apples out of the process. That's the first thing. Second big thing is, again, we have to have civilian representation on trial boards or misconduct boards within police departments. These whole community oversight boards that are external, they have no power at all. They're symbolic. Whenever a police chief gets excited about that, that's because he or she knows it has no power at all. It's simply yeah. symbolic. It has to be in the police department. And Nashville is a model for that. Final thing I'll say, and of course, I could go on along this, but these would be some a few things. We need to ensure that we really get back to community policing. And let me tell people what community policing means. Yeah. Community policing is not a police officer playing basketball or football with a kid. Community policing is experiencing the community, going to the gym, going to the grocery store, going to restaurants, sending their kids to the local schools, right? Interacting with people. You know, that, that actually happens. That primarily happens in predominantly white and affluent neighborhoods, right? Mm -hmm. um, or it can also happen in parts of, say, Prince George's County or even in Atlanta where you have a larger number of black officers. But these are the exceptions that actually prove the rule to the importance of it. White officers are less likely than black and Latino officers to live in the neighborhoods and they're less invested in them. And I think that's a detriment. So what needs to happen is there needs to be a requirement for law enforcement to live in the areas where they work. Why is that? Because they're public servants, they're being paid by taxpayers. If you don't wanna do it, go do another profession. There are a whole bunch of other things to do. And being a police officer is one of the most difficult things you can do. It's not for everybody, everybody can't do it. Final thing of the community policing model is worrying about officers themselves. Part of what happens with bias is that when you have to make a quick decision, when you don't have a lot of time. Correct, instinctual. When yeah, yeah, when you don't know all the information, the, the, the social psychological term is what we would call subjective uncertainty, uncertainty and cognitive dissonance. But the point is that when you have to make break these things down, implicit bias goes on steroids. And the other way that that happens is when officers are tired, when they're hungry, when they're stressed out. And I have a data set showing that 80 percent of officers suffer from chronic stress. 90% of them never seek help for their depression and anxiety. One in six are suicidal. One in six report substance abuse. The suicides we saw after the Capitol uh, riot, after the insurgency that those domestic terrorists did, were not surprising to me. So we have to get police officers the mental health resources that they need to be in the positions that they're in to hopefully actually protect and serve us instead of over-policing our communities. And I hope that everybody listen to those things and we can chop them up and make sure that we utilize those in our talking points when we're going out here being advocates for what we believe in. Before I let you go, though, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about Derek Chauvin 
that you're following the trial like all of us. And when I see it, I feel like there are plenty of good officers, but there are some Derek Chauvin's in every police department. Am I being overly skeptical or has your research borne that out? And what do we do about it? No, you're not being overly skeptical. I mean, you're right on target. Look, Derek Chauvin is actually a, a prototypical example to highlight this. Let me quickly say this. We know that Derek Chauvin has upwards to close to 20, 20 misconduct, mm-hmm. compl- you know, complaints, allegations. These are the ones that have been, had, that have been filed, right? Like people have to realize what this means. That means there's probably a whole lot more. Why is this systemic? Because of some of the things I'm talking about were in place. Derek Chauvin would have never been a police officer at the time he killed George Floyd to begin with. The current police chief in Minneapolis was actually over internal affairs when Derek Chauvin had a majority of these complaints. He could do nothing. His hands were tied because getting rid of bad officers because of qualified immunity, because of other sorts of statutes related to the fraternal order police, it is very difficult to get rid of bad officers and they spoil the tree. They train other people. Yep. They bring other people. You saw, up. you saw what he did with the officers. I mean, I, I'm not exalving them from anything, but you saw how the other officers, the younger officers around him in that George Floyd incident acted with his presence there. They listened to him. They cowered of to course. him. Of course yeah. they did, you know? And so these, these are big problems. And I mean, look, the, the Derek Chauvin trial is a moratorium on race relations in the United States. No question. And litmus everyone, test. It's the, it is the litmus test. It is it for the 21st century. Everyone in the U.S. and around the world are watching this. They have three charges. There's no reason why they should not come back with at least one of those convictions. Yeah, good. I, I'm not a believer yet, but hopefully. I want, I've never wanted to be wrong more in my life. My heart won't let me get there. Before <laughs> I let you go, you're at Brookings now and you have your center at the University of Maryland. That's doing great work. What's next for you? Look, I think I'll, I think I'll be at these places for a while. You know, we're doing some very important work on policing, on criminal justice reform. Uh, We have a report coming out on uh, criminal justice reform with the American Enterprise Institute. Mm. Um, Andre Perry and I have a piece that just hit Washington Post about reparations in Evanston. I've been doing a lot of work on reparations. Um, We were going to get to that. We're going to do a special, which we're going to bring you back on reparations as that gains steam and builds a little traction in Congress. We'll bring you back to talk about that. I look forward to it. It's moving. You know, I'm on some congressional committees and that's one of them. And I mean, things are really moving. I mean, I think in the House, the votes are actually there. And so just some very important issues. And I think Brookings and Maryland uh, provide the opportunities to keep doing important work. That's what's up, man. Thank you for joining the Bakari Sellers podcast. I hope people learn something from the brilliant Rayshawn Ray. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers podcast. Before I let you go. It's a sad moment where I want to take a moment to recognize the University of South Carolina Gamecocks women's basketball team and head coach Don Staley. My Gamecocks unfortunately fell short in the national semifinals on Friday night. (sighs) I'm so sad about this, losing to Stanford by a point. I still think they were the best team in the country this year, and had it not been for two questionable calls, they'd be playing in a championship this weekend. Their prowess on the court is obvious, and with so much for talent returning and a full complement of McDonald's All-Stars on the way. I expect Coach Staley and the Gamecocks to be in the national championship next year. But what I also want to recognize is that this group of young women and Coach Staley spoke up and stood tall for black people in women's sports, all while being student athletes and dominating this season while quarantining. A lot of folks just play basketball and a lot of people are activists, but how many of them are student athletes that dominate their sport and profession while speaking their truth to power and winning? No one. And for that, 
I couldn't be prouder to be a South Carolinian, a South Carolina alum, and a black man. And I can't think of a coach other than maybe Nick Saban, who means as much to their university as Don Staley means to us, to the state of South Carolina. She deserves the world, and South Carolina Athletic Director Ray Tanner needs to give it to her. And that's that on that. We'll see you all on Thursday. Thursday.